Beyond the Collabo Babble is now in session. What I think the best lawyers bring to child welfare are uh, really good people skills. Um, because you have to be able to balance uh, the ability to deal with really difficult people. Uh, and that could be the most difficult county attorney, yeah. <laughs> uh, a really challenging caseworker, or the most mentally ill client. Yeah. Beyond the collab of Babel, meet the people behind the studies, programs, projects, and initiatives. Beyond the collab of Babel, keeping you motivated and focused through the challenges. Beyond the Collab of Babel, sparking innovation, improvement, and reform. Beyond the Collab of Babel, listen, learn, lead, take action. Listen, learn, lead, take action. Listen, learn, lead, take action. Welcome to Beyond the Collab of Babel, a podcast committed to sharing stories of collaboration, system improvement, and system reform in the Colorado courts, and introducing you to the people leading these efforts and taking action. The star of today's podcast is Executive Director of the Office of Respondent Parent Counsel, Melissa Thompson. I am your Collabo Babble host, Bill Delisio, Family Law Program Manager at the Colorado State Court Administrator's Office, Court Services Division. So, good afternoon, Melissa. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thanks, Bill. Yeah. Would you let the audience know where we are recording this episode of the podcast? We're in my office. Yeah. And the, was this the office tower? The, is this considered the Ralph Card office tower as well? It is. Yeah. Well, thank you for having me in your office today. Um, the Office of Respondent Parent Counsel is probably something that a lot of people have heard of. But you're still a pretty pretty new agency. When did um, when did this office open officially? So our doors opened January, I think it would be January second of 2016. Yeah. Uh, but we took over oversight of Respondent Parent Council across the state of Colorado on July first of 2016. Okay, so about three years. So I like to start the podcast by asking the guests, "What does Beyond the Collabo Babble mean to you?" So I thought a lot about this today. Uh, and I thought about how many hours um, I've sat in meetings, talking and talking and talking, and a lot of things not getting done. Uh, and I think that's really true of my office, mm-hmm. um, because long before my office came to life, uh, a lot of people talked about my office for years and years and years and years, uh, which was great. I think it was important that people had conversations about uh, what would make an office like mine, a respondent parent council office, great for so long. Um, but I think that the problem with talking is that a lot of things don't get done. Yeah, uh, and so I think beyond the collab bubble is, which is also also a really hard word to say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, is about action. Mm-hmm. It's about actually doing something. Okay. Um, and so that's what I was thinking about. Okay, um, it's about you know you can talk for so long, but um, it really takes people moving beyond talk yeah. and getting things done. Yeah, so. Can you just share with the audience like your your path to becoming the executive director and and sort of what you did in your legal career before landing here? So I took the long path, okay, <laughs> uh, which is kind of an interesting one, and I think it makes sense uh, for why I have this role. Um, I actually went to school to be an artist. Um, that was my first degree was in computer animation and multimedia. Oh, wow. And I made video games. Oh, wow. Really? Yeah. yeah. I probably did not know that. I did not know that. I made video games for EA Sports, uh, racing games. Um, 
and I was um, a three day a three D animator and track builder for Formula One racing games. Wow. Um, for EA Sports, uh, for actually a small animation studio that contracted with EA Sports Europe. Uh, and I actually um, had an issue. I was the only woman who worked there. Okay. Uh, and I had an issue with my art director. I complained about it and they fired me. Oh, no. Uh, and um, I sued them. And I hated my lawyer. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I see where this is going. <laughs> uh, and I, I was 20, I don't know, I was really young. I was like 21 or 22. And I really didn't know a whole lot about the world or about lawyers or courts. Um, and I was really frustrated. I would call the guy, he wouldn't call me back. I didn't understand the court process. And the whole thing was really traumatic um, and awful. Um, and after that experience, the, the company ended up settling with me. Um, and I thought, well, I don't want anyone else to experience that. And I'm going to go to law school. Okay. Uh, so I went to the university of Michigan and, um, because my art degree was an associate degree, I went to the university of Michigan and earned my degree in English. And then from there I went straight to law school at Wayne state in Detroit. Okay. Um, and I knew that I didn't want to do, um, employment law <laughs> from this experience. Uh, um, but I wanted to have clients, um, and I had some great professors and I, um, great mentors. And I ended up interning at the state appellate defender office in Detroit, um, and got really interested in indigent defense. Um, and ended up interviewing at public defender agencies across the country and decided that I wanted to be a public defender. Um, and I was also really interested in systems reform because in Michigan, the public defender system was really in dire straits being sued by the ACLU for the way that it was administered. Um, and I actually, uh, as I was applying to um, be a public defender, I also applied to be a Soros fellow uh, to do systems reform mm -hmm. in Michigan. Um, and I was really interested in it. So I was a finalist for a Soros Fellowship um, to do systems reform in Michigan. Um, and I was also offered a job uh, to be a Colorado State Public Defender. Um, and the Soros um, people called me and they were like, we give out six of these and you were number seven. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I accepted the job uh, in Colorado and I came out to be a public defender. Uh, and they placed me in Pueblo, which uh, for a young single person was kind of like <laughs> the worst thing ever. <laughs> and I was like, well, I'm not sure I want to go to Pueblo. But in, in any event, it was 2009. The economy was in the dumps and I moved to Pueblo. Okay. Um, so I loved being a public defender. And uh, you're probably familiar with, you know, all the different jurisdictions in Colorado and places where, you know, people practice. Uh, Pueblo was the best place yeah, was, to learn. I was thinking it probably ended up being a blessing in disguise mm -hmm. once you moved there, huh? The Pueblo ended up being the best place to learn yeah. how to be a lawyer. Yeah. Uh, it was, I think, um, a great, a great courthouse, a great family of public defenders. Uh, when I started there, like really reasonable district attorneys, um, great juries. Uh, I loved my clients. Um, mm -hmm. And it was just a great, 
it was a great place to, I think, learn, grow up as a lawyer. Yeah. Um, I ended up meeting my husband there. Uh, and I just, like, I couldn't say a good, enough good things about Pueblo. Yeah. Like, it was the place I didn't want to go, but I really loved to be. Yeah. Um, so uh, I did some really great litigation uh, in Pueblo that um, I ended up, getting some statewide recognition for. So I was the first lawyer in Colorado to challenge the shackling of children okay. um, in court. So I filed a motion about it and um, in front of Judge Mays, uh, who was a great judge. Yeah. And I practiced in juvenile court there. I really loved representing kids. Uh, and I trained um, all over Colorado. I trained in Puerto Rico on how to pursue that kind of litigation. Um, and uh, I just think it was a great place for me. And then I started gaining kind of a statewide reputation as a lawyer um, and meeting people in Denver, which, you know, when you're, you're practicing in Pueblo as a public defender, you don't really like get to meet, um, you know, lawyers in Denver and get a reputation other places. But because of that litigation, I did. Okay. Um, uh, as I practiced there, um, I ended up becoming um, a supervisor in my office. I managed other lawyers and I got management experience. Um, and I, you know, was trying homicides in a lot of really serious cases. Mm -hmm. um, I was also getting really burnt out. Okay. <laughs> uh, Just the day-to-day -day grind of being well, in the courtroom and supervising cases that are in the courtroom? Uh, hard cases. Yeah. Uh, really hard cases. Um, hard, some hard clients. And I think... You know, I'd, I'd been practicing, I think, close to seven years as a public defender, and I think that I was just tired. Okay. Um, and so I had, uh, I had a case, and I have permission for my client to talk about this particular case. Um, I had a case um, where a child had died. Um, my client was charged with that death, um, and she had respondent parent counsel you know, I handled her criminal case and she had RPC on the other side and I went um, and I watched some of those proceedings and I was really shocked. And it goes back to my interest in systems reform. Okay. Uh, I watched what was happening and I was upset. Um, you know, what are these lawyers doing? Uh, what is happening in this courtroom? And I was hearing from my client that her lawyer wasn't calling her. Okay. Um, she didn't understand what was going on. I went with her to a family engagement meeting because her lawyer um, wouldn't go with her and she was scared. Um, and I was, again, shocked uh, with how she was being treated um, with what I thought was supposed to be an engagement meeting uh, with how the department um, was treating her, uh -huh. uh, where I felt like all of a sudden here I was trying to mediate between my client and the department. Um, uh, it was just a very strange role uh, for me to have. I was really um, you know, questioning what is the system and what's happening. Mm -hmm. um, and then all of a sudden I was, you know, I was looking at uh, Indeed and this job popped up yeah. uh, to be the deputy director of a new state agency, the Office of Respondent Parents Council. And I was like, whoa, uh -huh. what timing, the middle of this case. Oh, uh, okay that I was watching, you know, just this work happen. And I yeah. thought, oh, well, this is the perfect job for me. I want to be part of something that's changing 
this thing that is hurting this person that I care about. Um, and there was a lot of questions in that case about, um, you know, the cause of death of that child, whether it was accidental or what was going on. Um, so I applied and I interviewed just a couple doors down. Uh, and the same day of my interview, I was offered the job of deputy director mm -hmm. of the agency and I took it. Um, and all of a sudden I was moving to Denver and my yeah. husband, uh, who was also a public defender, okay. was like, all right, we're moving to Denver. Uh -huh. And uh, our life was all of a sudden changing um, in big ways because of the Office of Respondent Parents Council. Um, and uh, the director at the time was really excited to work with her, super mm -hmm. dynamic person, um, really motivated to change what was going on with Respondent Parent Council. Um, the system of Respondent Parent Council uh, in Colorado, I think there were some real problems with how RPCs were paid. Yeah. Um, if you lived on the I-25 corridor, you were paid a, a flat fee, $1,125 for two years of work, which is just not fair. It mm -hmm. uh, doesn't promote um, real advocacy uh, for parents. It promotes getting the most cases mm -hmm. so you can actually make a living doing this work. Yeah. Um, so it doesn't work for parents or families. Um, you know, there wasn't, I think, adequate training, adequate resources, adequate funding um, for RPCs, and I wanted to be part of changing that. Um, so there I was. I was a deputy director and bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and ready to change the world uh, and kind of feeling like, oh, this is where I wanted to be, yeah. doing systems change. Uh, and I thought, okay, let's do it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, um, so here I am. Here you are. So. Um, you mentioned this before that, that we talked about um, as a state and as a court improvement program, I think as far back as 1996, it might have been identified in one of the um, one of the assessments of the state's dependency and neglect system that an office for children's representation and an office for parents representation. It took, well, I guess that if it was 2016 and it started in 1996, if I'm doing my math right, it's almost 30 years from the first time it was really identified and when the federal government started giving states 20 uh, years, 20 years, 20 years, started giving states funds to actually take a look at this system and, and, and reform it. But, um, and you also mentioned that you've been open since 2016, but just a little bit more, talk a little bit more about what office of respondent parent council is. How many offices like this are you aware of around the country? And what are you seeing going on around the country in this area? Just to give those people in the audience who maybe don't practice in juvenile an idea of a little bit more background on why we needed Office of Respondent Parent Council. So uh, across the country, depending on where you live, uh, it's really different. You might have access to um, a lawyer, a social worker, a parent advocate, or well-resourced, like you, know, you, you would be in Colorado or in Washington State or in Oregon. Um, you're going to have a similar experience where you if you're at risk of losing your children and they've been removed from your home you're involved with child welfare mm -hmm. uh you're going to have access a lawyer and resources uh and what i would think would be fairness in the process a yeah. due process yeah um if you live um tennessee um uh, you're gonna have a lawyer but the courts in that state have determined that it doesn't matter if your lawyer is effective, which is an interesting idea, right? You can have a lawyer, but they 
doesn't can, matter if they're effective. Yeah, yeah. They don't, you don't have to be an effective one. They just have to be a warm body in court. Mm-hmm. Uh, so few places um, in, I think, across the country have the kind of resources that Colorado is making available mm. to parents. Um, really, you know, Washington, Oregon, Colorado, New York, um, I think we're unique. Um, there are some states that are moving towards this kind of model uh, and working towards it. Um, there are places where on a county level they have this kind of access. Yeah. Um, but as far as like statewide, um, this kind of budget, uh, as well resources we are, it's, I think it's rare. Yeah. I think I've heard this thrown around before, like due process, D U E due process. But in some of these places, it's more like due process, D O process. <laughs> um, the, the parents don't really seem to have an attorney that that's able to advocate for them. You've mentioned that the really switching, you switched to the hourly rate for the state of Colorado after the, taking this over. This That was the, so when I became the director and, um, the acting director in August of uh, 2016 and my first budget request was due November 1st of 2016. And that was our very first request was to move everyone hourly. Surprisingly to me, there was actually resistance from our lawyers. Mm -hmm. Some of them didn't want to be hourly. Mm -hmm. Uh, They thought they made more money on a flat fee basis. Um, they uh, didn't want to have to go through the hourly billing process because sure. like, that's time consuming. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they didn't want us to be able to maybe look at what they're actually doing with their time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think now that they're doing it, they realize like, oh, actually, this is a better way to live. So folks uh, are starting to really like that. Yeah, yeah. I think I remember from 2005 when we surveyed the respondent council was something like 5347 in favor of flat fee. I mean, it was it was one of those numbers that it was almost 50 50 across the state of people who like the current contracting system versus the, the flat rate. But you're saying now that it's been in place for a few years, it's starting to take I guess people are starting to appreciate it more. I, I think so. And when you look at when you look at the numbers, like people make more money. Oh good. Um I think people make more money. And they get to practice law in a case that needs like the attention when it needs the attention, right? Right. And so, you know, part of our responsibility is improving the representation um of parents and sometimes we have had to bring lawyers in and say, Look, uh, you need to, we have to raise the bar and you need to raise your bar. Uh, and these are things you need to improve. And I've had lawyers say to me, you know, I was raised as a lawyer on a flat fee basis. Uh, and what that means is I never thought of spending the time to write a really thorough motion, uh, and really having a motions practice where I was a written advocate for parents. Uh, and what this agency has done is taught me how to be that kind of advocate. Um, and being able to bill hourly and um, combined with the training of this office has changed who I am as a lawyer. And this is someone who's been practicing for years and sure, years. Right. And it's really, it's been illuminating for me yeah. to have those people come back to us and say, like, I didn't really like you. Uh, I didn't really appreciate what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Uh, but actually now I do. Yeah. Well, it was more than talk, right? I mean, you, 
you took over an agency that was obviously going to be disruptive no matter what happened because <laughs> it was it it was a new addition. I mean, there were there were dollars being spent on attorneys and contracts in place, but there wasn't the same oversight and quality control and guidance and training in the same way that I know that you've put them into place. So, I mean, are we starting to hear the stories and see the changes, even though I'm sure you get the criticism that, you know, it would just be easier if, if I guess, if the attorneys didn't file these motions. I'm sure some of them are getting some blowback because it was new. But are we starting to see people across the system see the benefit and maybe raising the bar and the quality of representation is also bringing more justice? Because isn't that really what it's about is some justice and mercy for the families that we find, for the most part, are are in, in poverty and having a hard time in life. I like to think of it as fairness for family, yeah. fairness, yeah. the fairness for families. Yeah. Uh, because if, if you think about it as like all the different parties in child welfare, if there's one who doesn't have a level footing uh, or an equal playing field, um, it's just not fair. Yeah. Right. Um, and if everyone is, uh, well-resourced. Uh, I like to think of it as a magistrate Spangler said to me, you need a, a dream team for a child. Uh, that means um, the best RPC for a parent, the best county attorney, the best caseworker. If everyone's bringing their A game, mm. I think that means that it's fair for families. Yeah. Uh, it means you're going to get the best access, the best resources, the best treatment plan. Uh, that means the system's going to work. Yeah. Um, now, is everyone super happy when the parents roll in it uh, and they've got a great lawyer who knows the law and has great trial skills and who's going to push back? Um, and they've got an, a social worker who's saying to the department, actually, this is what the parent needs. Uh, and I think this is what reasonable efforts looks like. Uh, and I think this is actually the provider who's going to... Um, make that happen for them. Um, and uh, our office is paying for an expert to challenge the department's f expert. Yeah. Uh, and we're asking for a contested hearing about it. Do I think everyone's happy about it? No. Um, but should everyone think that that's what's fair? Sure. I think so. Yeah. Um, so I've had um, a, a caseworker hire up uh, well, not a caseworker, a department, you know, higher up, come up to me and say, you know, you've really brought in a lot of new RPCs. It's really changed things for us. Um, and it's really made us think about what due process looks like for parents. Uh, and it's been a good reminder. That's great. Uh, and to me, you know, I'm going to high five myself because yeah. <laughs> he's probably not going to high five me. Uh -huh. uh, but I think like, that's great. That is great. Um, and he said, will you have lunch with me? So we can talk about what this new dynamic looks like. Okay. And I'm like, of course, like, let's have lunch yeah. um, and talk about how we all can work together. Because I realize that when you put in a new mix into the water that is ch child welfare, we're going to make waves. Yeah. Um, but I still think if everyone's talking and communicating, uh, we can still be a great team. Yeah. Um, because if I'm raising the bar, everyone should be raising the bar. Yeah, no, definitely. That's a great, that's a great example of really coming in and being disruptive, but getting people to focus on what's important. And that's fairness. I do believe most people are interested in the system being fair. It's just sometimes it takes a little bit of a change to see what it could look like, right? Just doing things because it's the right thing to do doesn't always 
work out. But right. having an advocate that can help paint that picture seems like it's really making a difference. Right. And I, like a, a jurisdiction that, that I really, like I struggled with and I appreciate, um, Arapaho. They did not want my lawyers at their family engagement meetings, links mm-hmm. meetings. Uh, and that's fair. The I, links meetings, is that what you said? Yeah, so, they called the, the family engagement meetings okay. are called links meetings yeah. in Arapaho. Uh, and the department did not want them there. They said, well, they're going to make them litigious. They're not going to have the right approach. Um, and I said, look, parents need their lawyers at those meetings. That's what's fair. Uh, I think that you'll be surprised what will happen if they're there. Um, give it a chance. Mm-hmm. And I'm willing to hold my lawyers accountable. Um, if they don't have the right, right approach, you can call me. I will make sure that they do. I will train them. I will be there along the way. Um, let's trust me. Uh-huh. Uh, and I'll trust you. Okay. I appreciate what you've done to make links. Um, you know, what did they call it? The heart of links. Okay. I want you to appreciate the heart of links, Melissa. I'm like, I appreciate the heart of links. I don't want to hurt it. Um, but give them a chance. Yeah. And they did. And then I had, I had coffee with the department. Um, and they said, you know, it's going really well. We were, right. we were surprised. Yeah. <laughs> So a lot of people probably thought when RPC shows up, they just want to disrupt and, and cause problems. And, and then you get to sit down and have a nice, honest conversation about how we're going to train and how we're going to support and how right. we can all work together to reach the same goal of what's fair for families. Right. And I, um, you know, I, I said, uh, I'm really grateful that you gave us this chance um, to be there now let's let them all in yeah, because yeah. <laughs> it was like a limited basis. Yeah. Like now let's let them all in. Uh, but I was really grateful that they yeah. took that chance uh, and trusted me that I would hold my lawyers accountable. Yeah. Um, I think that the best RPCs and you know, I, I talked about like what makes the best lawyer in town mm. um, is having someone who brings the right skill to the right moment mm. at every part of a DNN because yeah. there is a different skill yeah. uh, at every stage of the DNN. I think it is what makes DNN cases so much more complicated mm-hmm. than any other type of litigation that happens in courts yeah. anywhere. Yeah. Right. Um, because you really have to be such a, um, uh, have so many different disciplines in your pocket mm. when you practice this type of law. And it's sort of facts can change from one month to the next. Right. So, yeah. Your theory of the case might have to be a little more flexible based on what's going on, right? Right, right. Are you seeing um, an impact on the availability of services or are you having at least more conversations about how we now know where there's a gap in some services that that aren't available and we're working towards trying to create those services, whether it's in a particular county or on a statewide basis? Um, I mean, I see uh, we run a listserv um, and I see, you know, like, emails from our lawyers like, Hey, you know, we're struggling to find this in this place. Does anyone know Mm. of anything? Um, we have are growing our list of social workers that work with parents on our cases. And and, you do that like on a contract basis. Yeah. We contract with social workers. Um, it's a little, it's a little bit complicated. So we have three pilot programs and one in El Paso County, one in Mesa County, and one in Adams County, which also kind of includes Broomfield. Okay. Um, so the 17th Judicial District. In those counties, we contract with a total of uh, four social workers who we provide basically a full caseload 
wow. of cases. They're all EPP cases. Okay. Uh, and we have specific funding to fund those programs. Specific state funding from yeah, our legislature. So, okay. Yeah. So we have a specific budget request for that, that pilot program and we collect data. We've uh, contracted with Metro State to do a full evaluation of that okay. program um, to see whether it's effective and what we anticipate our outcomes will be is that when we pair a social worker with a lawyer and a parent that uh, our cases are they're shorter kids return home faster um, and overall uh, parents are more satisfied with the process um, and the there's a savings to the state so um, because kids are in foster care or out of home placement for a shorter period of time. Uh, then outside of that program, uh, our lawyers can request social workers uh, on any case. Oh, wow. Uh, and they would contact our social worker. She's now our, our program director, Jill Cohen. She used to work at CFSR in New York. Okay. Um, and they can request a social worker on an individual case uh, for a parent to work um, with that lawyer on, and that parent for the duration of that case. Oh, wow. Um, so that can happen anywhere in the state. Uh, then we also, separate from that, appoint social workers as an expert. You know, maybe they're doing um, a reasonable efforts review and they would be testifying in a case. So there's kind of a different capacities okay. in which we work with social workers. Um, I think our agencies work with social workers, especially in the pilot, is the most some of the most important work we do. When do you expect to see the the research or the report on that on that outcome research? Um, so the pilot, um, it's a two year pilot, and then there's a third year where we're running the pilot and we're evaluating data. So I think um, 2021 is when we'll okay. start to have data. Nice. And um, if those hypotheses are proven to be true, do you imagine that becoming more of a, a model that you wanted to roll out across the state? Is that the hope or at least uh, something to consider? It, it's one we want to expand. Okay. So we anticipate that, I mean, that's the data that comes out of CFSR, uh, out of Washington State. Like it's, um, you know, out of Vivek's program in Michigan. So we an- anticipate that... Um, our data would be consistent. Okay. Um, so you're saying in other programs where they've taken this model and applied a it, multidisciplinary that model. hypothesis has been proven to be true. And so mm-hmm. this is just using the Colorado experiment to kind of reinforce what some of the research already shows us around the country. Yeah. You, that's said, our you hope. said Vivek in Michigan, um, Washington state that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause they definitely yeah. have an office model with, right. with that. And the center for family representation Out in of, New York, in New York city. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So can you just share a story? You kind of did about the links meeting. That was a good one, but I'm going to put you on the spot for another one. Another story that maybe of collaboration that's changing the way that dependency and neglect cases are being handled. Another story of collaboration. Or how you changed serving your customers even. So it's another, like this is a social worker example. Um, I think housing can be such a huge problem. Like anywhere you go in Colorado, housing is a huge problem. And um, in our pilot in El Paso, uh, we have a social worker 
her name is Melissa Stein, who's our pilot social worker. She's incredible. Everyone there loves her. I wish I could clone her. Okay. <laughs> uh, she's she's amazing. So uh, there was a mother who was experiencing homelessness, and that was really the only reason that her family was involved in child welfare. It's because mm-hmm. of a, a homelessness issue. And... Um, Oftentimes those cases linger in child welfare because everyone's like, well, we can't, you know, we can't get housing. Like there's a wait list. Uh, You know, there's all these different barriers when it comes to housing uh, that causes a problem. Um, Melissa Stein um, identified a housing resource that no one had ever heard of. Uh, the department uh-huh. didn't know of it. Uh, the RPC didn't know of it. And the reason we knew this happened is because uh, the GAL uh, called us and said, I just got to tell you guys uh, that this mama and this child would have lingered in this system for months. Um, but your social worker identified this housing resource and this case closed in two weeks. Wow. Wow. Uh, what was that housing resource, or I, I couldn't, t- I couldn't even tell me. Okay. Yeah, I couldn't remember that. Yeah, yeah. I don't remember that. Uh, but Leo, the GAL, called us and said, "This is extraordinary. Um, no one had ever heard of this." Wow. Uh, and she found it, and now this case is closed, and this would never have happened. Family doesn't have to be separated. Right. They're back together. Right. And so is that a collaboration? Um, well, it is, it's, it's, it is within your office, though, yeah, I think. Yeah, you know, like this pairing programs. of like a lawyer and a social worker that I just like I just think is extraordinary. It is, and, yeah. Um, I got to tell you that, uh, you know, in 2016, um, we did our budget request uh, and the social worker pilot on November 1st wasn't in it uh, okay. <laughs> uh, because we just didn't get it in. Okay. Uh, and we ended up doing it as uh, a supplemental. Okay. Uh, on and so we submitted it on January one. Like we we really were like we got we got to do this. Uh-huh. We got to do it. So we did it. You know I don't often you work with uh, budgets, but it's kind of unusual to do it that yeah. way. It's and uh, it, like people are very careful to not do that and call too many. Yeah. It's not that it's a favor, but it's kind of out of the ordinary. Yeah. Right? So we ended up doing. The request for it was three hundred thousand to run this pilot program as, as a supplemental. Oh wow! Uh, because we, um, or was it a budget amendment? I can't even remember how we did it, but we were like, let's just do it. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it was a great idea. Uh, yeah, because we just were like, we like this pairing is one of the most important things our office can do. Yeah. So. Um, I think other things that um, have been really important for us um, as an agency um, is the relationships we've established with other people. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, when I came into this role, I certainly wasn't expecting it um, to be, you know, the deputy for a matter of months and then um you know our director resigned and i was the director um really quickly um the people that were there to support me and our agency because you know we and i think i made it a point to have good relationships with people mm-hmm. um has been one of the greatest gifts that um my agency has had so from 
you and Allison Young um, at Judicial, um, you know Terry Morrison, mm-hmm. uh, you know people at the department, Lorendia, Gretchen Russo. Yeah. Uh, those relationships with people that, you know, they're not, uh, you know, they don't represent parents, right? right? Uh, They have different roles in this system. Uh, But having those relationships with people and supporters of, you know, fairness for families really has been extraordinary and has felt very collaborative to me Mm -hmm. from the very beginning has been really really meaningful. Yeah. All right. Is there anything else about ORPC or the work you've been doing since 2016 that, that you didn't get a chance to talk about today? All right. Well, then we can. Nothing that, I mean, nothing that comes to the top of my head. I think, um, well, I'm, I will say that, uh, I mean, this seems silly. Uh, but our office has grown our budget from something like $14 million to, I think our most recent budget request is coming in at 22 million, uh, which is a huge increase in a short period of time. Uh, and I think it's really important because all those dollars mean better representation for, and fairness for parents and families. Uh, and also small businesses in Colorado that, you know, are our lawyers, it's meaningful for the lawyers that um, contract with us. And also when people think about, they graduate from law school, um, you know, they've gone you know to work from someone and they're like, you know, I'm going to start my own law firm. What am I going to do? Yeah. And I think, well, come contract with us. Yeah. Come do this work. Yeah. Um, because it is, the most meaningful work you can do. Now, if somebody uh, wants to come do this work, <laughs> I know there's a long list. We could probably spend an hour talking about it. What are some of the highlights of the things that you're looking for when you are contracting with attorneys? What are some of the, I mean, obviously law school and just having the basic foundational education, but what are the things that you look for and the attorneys that do this work and what sets that apart? So I think that you need to have some basics. Um, you need to have a, decent trial skills. You need to know the rules of evidence. Uh, but I, what I think the best lawyers bring to child welfare are, uh, really good people skills. Mm -hmm. Um, because you have to be able to balance, uh, the ability to deal with really difficult people. Uh, and that could be the most difficult County attorney, (laughs) uh, a really challenging caseworker or the most mentally ill client. Yeah. Uh, and some of the clients, all in the same day, yeah, <laughs> uh, you know, or a really challenging judge. Um, you have to be someone who's really resilient uh, because you are going to lose more often than you win. Uh, and as I often tell lawyers, you really have to redefine what winning is, <laughs> okay. yeah. Yeah. Uh, because uh, these cases are hard. Um, families don't come into child welfare, uh, with a lot of victories at your fingers, right? They come in with the greatest challenges uh, and you have to problem solve, uh, on how you're going to help them get back on their feet, um, and learn to collaborate with the people who remove their children. 
Um, and I think helping families manage that dynamic is a challenge. Um, so I really, I think people who have resiliency, people skills, good trial skills, uh, and who can get up every day are ready to meet those challenges and say positive and bright. Um, in light of what, what is challenging work, but can also be the most rewarding work that you could ever do. Because I think if you can help, um, a family get back on its feet, you aren't just helping that family, like you are helping a generations of people, um, to come. Yeah, right. Definitely. Yeah. I think that's the what whole it's, community, the yeah, family itself, generations. Yeah. Uh, that's why it's such meaningful work. work. Okay. So um, I'd like to ask you what your top three takeaways for taking action from this episode of Beyond the Collabo Babble is. And if you don't have three, then what's your one big takeaway for taking action? Um, I have three. Okay. I wonderful. thought about I thought about it. Wonderful. All right. <laughs> uh I think I learned this as a lawyer, like if you don't ask, um, like, what do you have? You have, you have to ask, even if you're afraid. Uh, I love, uh, the Theodore Roosevelt quote, um, that ends or somewhere in the middle with dare greatly, Mm -hmm. uh, dare greatly. Mm -hmm. Um, cause what do you have to lose? Um, and be you. Uh-huh. Um, I think I get a lot of pushback, uh, because of my experience, because I've never practiced as a respondent parent counsel. Um, well, I am here, yeah. uh, and I'm doing this work uh-huh. and I think it's really important no matter where you are or what you're doing in your life to be who you are and be proud of it. So be you. All right. All right. The last thing is getting to know you a little bit better. What surprised you about this podcast today? Oh, it went by really fast. Okay, good, <laughs> good. Um, what's your favorite thing or place in Colorado? Uh, being home with my family. Okay. Home, it's your family. All right, now where is somewhere in the world that you dream of visiting one day? I really want to go to South Africa. Oh, yeah. Why is that? Um, beautiful beaches. Uh, I've always wanted to go on a safari. Okay. And what's your perfect meal? Uh, so I really love to cook. Um, but I think the best meal is when you've got great food, um, really good wine and a company that makes you laugh. That's awesome. I agree with that. Okay. And lastly, what is something you believed for a long time that you later found to be untrue? Um, so my parents told me that I should never go to law school. (laughs) They told you that? Yeah. Like before you went to law school or your whole life? Uh, before I went to law school, okay. biggest fight I ever had with my dad. Oh. Uh, I shouldn't be a lawyer because I thought that I was too quiet uh-huh. uh, and too shy. Okay. Um, and I believed it for a while. And oh. You believed you were too quiet and too shy? Yeah. To be an effective lawyer? Like yeah. while you're going through law school? No, before I, oh, before before you... I ended up going. Okay. Um, and... Uh, I went anyway and, um, and you found that that wasn't true, not true, that you're not quiet and shy or (laughs) that it didn't affect your ability to be alert. Um, I'm uh, not that quiet. Uh, (laughs) I am actually a little shy, Uh uh, but I can get over it. 
Yeah. Especially <laughs> when you're like in the arena, going back to the Teddy Roosevelt and daring greatly, right? Yeah. All right. Well, uh, <laughs> go ahead. Also, I would much, this is a little known fact, I'd much rather talk to a crowd of people um, than have to talk to um, one person one on one. Oh, yeah. 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 I, I, depending on the topic, I hear you. <laughs> Well, I think that's a good place for us to stop today. I just want to thank you so much for the time that you carved out of your schedule to talk to me about your office. And um, thank you for being the guest on Beyond the Collab Bible. Thanks, Bill. All right. Thanks. Well, that's it for this episode of Beyond the Collab Bible. Listen, learn, listen, lead, learn, take action. Listen, learn, listen, learn, take action. Listen, learn, listen, learn, take action. 